0: Amen. All right. Well, hello again. Uh, as mentioned, my name is Paul Stiver. I'm one of the elders here at Hope Lower Town. Uh, and we are now in week four of five. Yes, right. Of our What's in a Name series. We've been doing this short series looking at different ways that the church is described in the New Testament and trying to unpack what does that mean in the New Testament? What does that mean for us today? Uh, So we've looked at thus far, we've looked at uh, ecclesia, I think is how you say it. That's how Brian's been saying it. I thought it was ecclesia. It just means assembly. That was Brian, week one. We've looked at body, the body of Christ that we all are members, that we all matter. We looked at last week family, uh, that we belong to each other, that we're in this kind of family together, adopted through Christ. Uh, And now this week, we're looking at another one, And, and this is actually a picture of last Sunday, Brian and I had the honor of teaching our, our biblical hermeneutics seminar. And hermeneutics uh, is just a big word for how the Bible reads the Bible and what is the, the big story of the Bible. And so actually last week, I think we had 20 total, including some lower tonians. Uh, Jamie's upstairs, but I'll point at you instead. Uh, <laughs> so we had a few lower tonians. I, I don't know if that's our word, but I'll take it. Uh, and then a bunch of people from downtown and Brian and I taught. Uh, how to read uh, the Bible, how the Bible reads the Bible, how to see Jesus in all the Bible. And we had a blast in that. It actually is one of the greatest joys of uh, ministry is getting to teach people how to read their Bible. Uh, But in that, I was really hit with one of the passages as Brian was kind of taking us through the big storyline of Scripture. There's a passage we're going to look at today which is one of the pivotal passages in all of Scripture, as in one of the passages that moves us forward in the story in a big way, and that's uh, going to be what we look at today in Acts chapter one, verses one through eight. Uh, in this week's message, you will be my witnesses. And so the context of this is: is uh, the book of Acts is written by Dr. Luke, who also wrote the Gospel according to Luke, and he has made some; he's declared some things about what Jesus has said. And now in the book of Acts, kind of his second letter uh, to go with his gospel, he is saying some more words of Jesus as we kind of pivot in the story to who the church is going to be. And so the passage begins, it says, in my former book, Theophilus, Theophilus just being the guy that Luke is writing these letters to, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up to heaven. After giving instructions to the Holy Spirit, through the Holy Spirit to the apostles, Then they gathered around him and asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So it's actually a pretty short passage this week, but we're really going to key in on these verses The question first, but really what Jesus responds to. And and just looking at their question in verse 6, we see the things that they ask. Lord, are you, okay, you now have, in the storyline, you've risen from the dead, you're the resurrected Messiah. Are you now going to restore the kingdom to Israel? So they're asking about this at a time when Israel is occupied by the Romans when Jerusalem is a holy city is occupied by the Romans and they're saying, are you going to overthrow the Romans and establish our rule as was promised according to what we understand it to be? So that's their question. Are you going to restore the kingdom to Israel now that you've risen from the dead? And what does Jesus say? I said, that's not for you to know. It is not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority. Rather, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. That it isn't going to be Jesus that establishes this kingdom, even though he already has begun it. It is actually going to be his apostles, his disciples, who receive this Holy Spirit, and as Jesus says, will be his witnesses. And it's not just for the kingdom of Israel, but to the ends of the earth. So Jesus gives them an answer they weren't expecting. And we're gonna spend a lot of time just looking at the answer that he gives, starting with what he says here. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And this is actually something that he says, this is the promise of my father. And so where do we see that? We'll go back to John's gospel, chapter 14. And Jesus is telling his disciples about the his death that's to come and he says this if you love me keep my commands and I will ask the father and he will give you another advocate to help you and be with you forever the spirit of truth the world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him but you know him for he lives with you and will be in you I will not leave you forever I will not leave you as orphans I will come to you and so Jesus is saying, you will receive the Holy Spirit's power. And I think sometimes when we think about the Holy Spirit, we talked about the Holy Spirit a couple weeks back. Uh, the Holy Spirit's been portrayed as like the force of Star Wars. I don't I've never watch those movies really. Sorry to let people down, but I just am not interested. But people will say the Holy Spirit's like the force, uh, just a power. And I, and I have here, you will receive the Holy Spirit's power, but the Holy Spirit is also the third person of the Trinity. He's a personal presence. He's the personal presence of God, as Jesus says. It's actually better for me to go away than I send my spirit to you and I will be, he will be with you and in you. And that's the promise the apostles get in Acts chapter one. You will receive power. And we see this happen right away in the next chapter. Acts chapter two, the day of Pentecost. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. They listened to him and stayed together as he said. Suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. So the Holy Spirit has fallen now on these apostles according to the promise that Jesus said. Now he's ascended and he sent the Holy Spirit along with the Father The people chat for a little bit. They speak in tongues. Other people that are there hear the gospel in their own language. Some ask, are they drunk? What is happening with the spirit that has fallen? Peter stands up and says this. And Peter stood up with the 11, raised his voice and addressed the crowd. Fellow Jews and all you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. These people are not drunk as you suppose. It's only nine in the morning. No, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. So this power has fallen on on the disciples. And it's the Holy Spirit as Jesus promised. And so what Peter does is actually, I remember now, what the prophet Joel said. God actually promised this hundreds of years ago that this day would come. And Peter is saying the day of fulfillment is here. That what you are witnessing is not people being drunk, but people being filled with God's spirit as was promised. Now the last days are upon us, Peter is saying. That the hourglass, when Jesus died on the cross, the hourglass of this age was flipped. And now God's spirit has come. So what we see is God fulfilling his promises after the resurrection and ascension of Jesus. And we go back to John 15, 26 through, that should be 27. When the advocate comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the spirit of truth who goes out from the Father, he will testify about me. And you you also must testify, for you have been with me from the beginning." So this promised Holy Spirit has been provided by God. God has sent his power and presence in the person of the Holy Spirit into the hearts and minds and lives of his disciples. Why? Verse 26, that the Spirit is actually gonna testify about who Jesus is. When we talked last time about the Holy Spirit a few weeks ago, we talked about how the Spirit's role is actually to always point back to Jesus, always show us who Jesus is, that he does not, the Spirit does not want glory. He wants Jesus to get the glory, and so he will testify. But then we see something else. In verse 27, you also must testify, for you have been with me from the beginning. And so we go back to our passage in Acts chapter 1. Receive the power of the Holy Spirit. And now we see Jesus says, and you will be my witnesses. And that's where our what's in a name comes from. Again, today's word, what we're thinking about is when Jesus says, you will be my witnesses. Ones who give testimony to what they have seen and heard. What well, typically we think about, right, as our, as our court system and swear on the Bible and give testimony to what you have seen and heard as you take the witness stand. The expectation being to tell the truth. Uh, the New Testament Bible Dictionary says, uh, yeah, I think that's it's one of, it's kind of its name. I got the name wrong. The New Dictionary of Biblical Theology says this, testimony is closely related to confession in the New Testament where a confession is a public proclamation of one's beliefs about and relationship with the person of Jesus Christ. A defining characteristic of witness is the willingness to confess Jesus Christ in the face of disbelief, opposition, persecution, and even martyrdom. So this testimony is this taking of the stand, as it were, a a public proclamation that I believe this gospel of Jesus Christ, I have a relationship with Jesus Christ, and I'm willing to confess that, I'm willing to declare that even in the midst of persecution, opposition, disbelief, and martyrdom. In fact, the word witness in the New Testament, the Greek word, is the same word for martyr. So there's this expectation of this relationship. So Jesus says, you will be my witnesses. You will be testifying about me. You will be bearing witness to what you have seen and heard. Peter later, the apostle Peter will say, we, and, and we'll say we did not follow cleverly devised myths. We've seen and heard Jesus. We've seen his glory. So what does that witnessing, what does that testifying look like? We'll continue on in the book of Acts. We'll go to chapter four. And this is right after, for context, Acts chapter 3, they heal a man outside the, uh, the temple. They heal a man. And the priests and Sadducees and the, and the rulers want to know what that's about, and they don't like it. The, the rulers, the Jewish rulers at that time. And that's kind of a little bit of the context for this passage. Acts chapter 4, starting in verse 1, it says, the priests and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees came up to Peter and John while they were speaking to the people. They were greatly disturbed because the apostles were teaching the people, proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. They seized Peter and John because it was evening. They put them in jail until the next day. But many who heard the message believed. So the number of men who believed grew to about 5,000. So we saw in Acts chapter 2, Peter's going to preach the first sermon and actually found the first megachurch. That's the joke, right? But 3,000 people come to faith. And here now, after this healing and their continuing proclaiming of the gospel, more and more are added to the number. The next day, the rulers, the elders, and the teachers of the law met in Jerusalem Annas, the high priest, was there, and so were Caiaphas, John, Alexander, and others of the high priest's family. They had Peter and John brought before them and began to question them, by what power or what name did you do this? So now here are Peter and John standing before the highest authorities in Jerusalem. Names even listed here. And they're asked this question. Then Peter, it says, filled with the Holy Spirit said to them, rulers and elders of the people, If we are being called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a man who was lame and are being asked how he was healed, then know this, you and all the people of Israel, it is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. Jesus is a stone you builders rejected, which has become the cornerstone. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. So there we see Peter's already received the Holy Spirit, but now he's, he's filled. He's, he's filled with the Holy Spirit to speak this word which is actually another promise of Jesus fulfilled, that Jesus promised when they were brought forth before rulers, the Holy Spirit would give them what to say, and here we see it. And he says, you crucified Jesus, but God raised him from the dead, and by his power, this man stands before you healed. He is the cornerstone, the one you builders, you rulers have rejected. And here we see the exclusive nature of the gospel. Salvation is found in no one else. There is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. At that time, and, and surely in our time, we, it's a pluralistic society, many different beliefs. You believe what you believe, just don't infringe upon mine. I will believe what I believe, and we'll just go about our business. But here, the Apostle Peter says there is one way to God, there is one way to salvation. You will either die in Christ and live with him or you will die in your sins. No works, no Christianity light, no religion can save you. You are saved by calling on the name of Jesus in the same way that this lame man was healed. Spiritually lame people who cannot save themselves are healed when they call upon the name of Jesus. He continues... But to stop this thing from spreading any further among the people, we must warn them to speak no longer to anyone in this name. I'm not going to spend a lot of time in this section. I just have to say one thing about verse 13. We're going to be talking about being witnesses for Jesus in our own lives. Verse 13 is one of the most encouraging confidence-building verses in the scriptures when we think about being witnesses. This is the game changer to the question. This is the game changing answer to the question what if I'm not good enough? What if I'm not a good enough witness? What if I don't have a good testimony? What if I'm not good at evangelizing, making friends with people, telling them about Jesus? Here they says, they realized Peter and John were unschooled, ordinary men, and yet had courage. They were able to proclaim this gospel. Continuing in verse 18, it says, "Then they called them in again and commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus, but Peter and John replied, "Which is right in God's eyes to listen to you or to him? You be the judges. As for us, we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. Again, we can't, we have to testify. We must testify. But if we remember the apostle Peter, It wasn't too long ago in the storyline of the Bible that he denied Jesus Christ three times. What has happened? Peter's gone from a denier to now boldly proclaiming in the face of opposition to eventual martyrdom tradition tells us. What is the difference for this apostle? Well, one thing we know in the end of John's gospel, Jesus restores him back to his good graces. However, it isn't restoration alone that Peter needs to proclaim boldly this testimony about Jesus. The difference is that now in Acts chapter four, Peter has the Holy Spirit. You will receive power. Peter has the Holy Spirit dwelling in him. The Holy Spirit causes cowards to stand tall in proclaiming Jesus. Peter didn't summon this boldness with his own strength, his own toughness, his own grit. I just gotta believe more and then I'll go out and be bold. No, this was grace. The Holy Spirit coming into his life and causing in him a desire to proclaim boldly the gospel in the face of persecution, opposition, and disbelief. And the good news for us is we have the same Holy Spirit that Peter had dwelling in us. If you're a follower of Christ, you've received the Holy Spirit and that same power, that personal presence of God that made him from a coward to bold to a martyr is dwelling in you and me. So we go back to our passage it says, you will be my witnesses Where? in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Jesus tells them, you're gonna testify to me to the ends of the earth. And in the book of Acts, we see this shift from from really looking at the apostle Peter to about Acts chapter nine uh, and especially 12 moving forward about the apostle Paul. And we see this move from Jerusalem to the ends of the earth as the apostle Paul becomes a missionary and a church planter. And this is, the, this is really the pattern of, of the book of Acts. It's the pattern of our church, and it's what we hope to do. That's why we plant churches here. That's why we are a location of hope community, because we want to, one, proclaim the gospel. We want to go into new contexts and proclaim the gospel in order that there might be new believers, and that from those new believers, we might gather as a new church, and that from that, this was the pattern of the Apostle Paul, this is our goal, that we would not be a lake, but a river. That we would not hold on to people and try and just be our little country club, but we want to send people out. We want to plant more churches and see more people come to Jesus and then repeat. And that was the Apostle Paul's mission. So what did the Apostle Paul and what did the early church do as they went out proclaiming? What did they proclaim? For that, we go to 1 Corinthians 2. This is a New Testament letter Paul is writing to a church that he helped found, and he's explaining what happened when he came to them. He's explaining his ministry to them in the founding of this church. He says, and so it was with me, brothers and sisters, when I came to you, I did not come with eloquence or human wisdom as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God. For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I came to you in weakness with great fear and trembling. My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the spirit's power so that your faith might not rest on human wisdom, but on God's power. Paul said, I wanted to know nothing among you except this thing, the greatest event that has ever happened in the history of the world. I have seen it. I've seen the risen Christ, the apostle Paul says, and I'm telling you about the greatest event, him being crucified, the Lord of glory on a cross and rising from the grave. And we have hope here. Paul says, I came to you not with in weakness, in great fear and trembling, not with impressive eloquence and and really persuasive arguments and wisdom like the Greeks of that day. I came in weakness so that you might see God's power. Paul says, I didn't want to show you my impressiveness. I wanted you to see God's power. He continues, we do, however... Speak a message of wisdom among the mature, but not the wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are coming to nothing. No, we declare a wisdom, a mystery that has been hidden and that God destined for our glory before time began. None of the rulers of this age understood it, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. However, as it is written, what no eye has seen, what no ear has heard, and what no human mind has conceived, the things God has prepared for those who love him. These are the things God has revealed to us by his spirit. And I love this verse nine here because we might be thinking, okay, in Acts chapter one, they they were his witnesses. They saw him die on a cross. They saw him rise from the dead, appear to them after the resurrection. But what about me? I didn't see him. And Paul says here, what no eye has seen, what no ear has heard and what no human mind conceived, God has revealed to us by his spirit. This is the beauty of God's revelation, that he has gifted us the ability by his spirit to see and understand and hear and know these things of Christ, even though we weren't eyewitnesses, in a sense, we are. We've got to see this right there in verse 12. Why did God give us his spirit? We always look for particular phrases in the Bible that help us understand what's being said. And in verse 12, we see one. So that, why has God given us the spirit from himself, not the spirit of the world? So that we may understand what God has freely given us. And Paul says, this is why we proclaim in words taught by the Spirit and not in human wisdom. We're explaining spiritual realities in Spirit-taught words. Ryan and I often joke, I think it's probably his joke, but this is why when we get up to preach, why on Saturday nights we can sleep at night. If I didn't know, verse 13, that the Spirit is going to speak through the Spirit to you, I would spend all night feverishly trying to perfect and craft every word in my human wisdom. But verse 13 is here, which means that in the words I proclaim, in the words we proclaim, God can open eyes as he gives people the spirit. So then we can have big imaginations for God. We can pray boldly. My prayer is actually from this message, that some of you might even consider becoming a missionary, that others of you might go out and have that conversation with a friend, a family member, and lead them to Christ by the Spirit working in you. Who might God save? He continues, the person without the Spirit does not accept the things that come from God, from the Spirit of God, but considers them foolishness and cannot understand them because they are discerned only through the Spirit. This person with the spirit makes judgments about all things, but such a person is not subject to merely human judgments for who has known the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him, but we have the mind of Christ. So we see this binary and this exclusiveness in verse 14 that there's a person who has the spirit not of the world or has a spirit of the world that they could receive the spirit of God. I go from considering spiritual things foolishness to considering them beautiful. This is my testimony. Rejecting the things of God to the point of being an atheist until one day God granted me his spirit and made me desire these things. Another illustration, we only, I don't know if if you're watching The Chosen, we're only at episode two. If you're not watching it, we're actually ahead of you, so take that. But if you are watching it, you're like, how are you only at episode two? We're watching this show, The Chosen. In the first episode, Mary Magdalene is overcome by demons and Jesus calls her by name and heals her. In the second episode, Nicodemus, one of the rulers of the people, goes to her after hearing of this healing. He can't believe it. He tried to heal her and it didn't work. And he looks at her and she says something to him that is powerful for us to understand. She says, I was one way, now I am another way. And what happened in the middle was Jesus. that's what we have we have Jesus in the middle of I was one way and now I am another way the spirit coming into our lives it's Jesus who did that so we testify to him of the I was one way but now I am another way what is the result of all this proclamation for the apostle Paul for Peter for the early church Ruth Tucker says this. She says, What began as a Jewish sect in A.D. 30, writes missiologist historian J. Herbert Kane, had grown into a world religion by A.D. 60, inspired by the leadership of such great Christians as Peter and Paul, and driven abroad by persecution, many trained and lay evangelists spread out, bringing the message of Christ with them. Every Christian was a witness, writes Stephen Neal, and nothing is more notable than the anonymity of these early missionaries. That from AD 30 to AD 60, I'm having a lot of fun with this fly that just keeps, it just keeps coming. Yeah, everybody's loving it. I see the slight whispers. There's nothing I can do. It just, may, if I, if I get really preachy, then it just looks like I'm preaching and I'm actually swatting away the fly. In 30 years, this testimony about Christ spread throughout the world. Why? Because every Christian, according to Stephen Neal, was a witness. In this great sentence, nothing more notable than the anonymity of these early missionaries. We don't know them all. They're regular people like you and me, testifying to Jesus, testifying because of the power of the Holy Spirit in them and the message of Christ crucified. So now we are Christ's witnesses at Hope Lower Town, that we stand on the shoulders of 2,000 years of people filled with the Spirit, proclaiming the message of Christ proclaiming that there is salvation found in no other name. We have the same spirit and the same gospel that they have. So how do we go about this proclamation? Michael Green and Tim Keller's book, How to Reach the West Again, says, or it says of this, Michael Green estimates that 80% or more of evangelism in the early church was not done by ministers or evangelists, but by ordinary Christians explaining themselves to their oikos, There's is a Greek word, I think it's also a yogurt, isn't it? It might be. Uh, Explaining themselves to their network of relatives and close associates. Just Christians explaining themselves. People paid attention to the gospel because someone they knew well, worked with, and perhaps loved spoke to them about it. He continues, the greatest challenge today is to stimulate a significantly sized percentage of Christians to intentionally adopt missional living in their daily lives and relationships. In our small groups here at Hope Lower Town, if you know this or don't know this, we have three pillars that our small groups are about. Community is C, that we wanna gather as a community, get to know each other in a deep way. Bible, that we one of the things we do, we gather around the Bible, we study God's word together and, and accountability, that we hold each other accountable to what God's word teaches as the New Testament explains and as the gospel calls us to this lifestyle. So we have community, Bible, and accountability. And under that, at Hope Lowertown, what we have begun, we're starting it with our small group leaders and our leadership is draw fourth thing, not a pillar, but a culture shift that we want to draw people in. We want to invite them in to our events, to our lives, to our small groups, Why? So that we can explain to them and testify to them about this person of Jesus and show them what a transformed life really looks like. My friend says it this way, a missionary friend of ours in a newsletter she wrote recently says, I may not be special as far as people go, but I know the Lord. The context of this is she's writing about people she's trying to reach in the country that she's in. And she says, I love them so much. And I realized something. She says that that I might be the only Christian that they know. I might be the only person who has the spirit, who has the message of Christ crucified that they know. And she says, I may not be special as far as people go, but I know the Lord. I may be unlearned. I may be unskilled, but I know Jesus I have his spirit. I have this message. This is what we get to give away. We're not special, but we know the Lord. We might be that only person in someone's life that could tell them this good news. It might be painful. It might be sacrificial. We might lose friends. But it will always be worth it. But how do we do this? I don't want to necessarily cost the specific actions as much as I want to point this out. Evangelism is doxological. It's a big word. Is, no, doxological. Doxological just means praise. We're actually going to sing the doxology today as we go from service. It's evangelism is doxological. As in the best evangelism it comes from praise. It comes out of our songs. It comes as I go about my normal life singing about the God, the Jesus who made me from I was to now I am. One of uh, my favorite things is uh, Costco. I love Costco, right? See, and I will, if I get a good deal at Costco or have a good experience at Costco, I will become what they call a brand ambassador. We all do this for different things. You might like REI, you might like... Um, Uh, I can't think, Lululemon, that's the first thing I thought of. But you say, you got to check this brand out. And I will happily go about telling people, hey, Costco's got this deal, you got to get it. It's the same thing with evangelism. When we really are encountering Jesus, we turn around and say, I got to tell you about this Savior. I got to tell you about the one who redeemed me. So in order to make this culture shift, it is our hope to be continuously drawing us to praise. Ed Clowney says this. He says, our evangelism must be doxological. As we sing of God's amazing grace among the nations, Jesus himself leads our praise. We saw that when we looked at Hebrews, that Jesus would stand in the midst of his brothers offering praises to God, the Father. Clowney continues, we do not bear witness defensively or proudly, but in the joy of worship. Like the shepherds who saw the Savior, we go on our way glorifying and praising God. You needn't hum a hymn to begin your personal witness to a neighbor. Don't do that. Don't start singing to someone, actually singing a song to them, and then share the gospel. Just share it with them. But he says, if your heart is singing praise, then your witness will ring true in a praising church full of gospel singing is a church in which visitors will say, God is among you indeed. So this is why we go back always to preaching Christ crucified. The what keeps our hearts aflame in praise for God. It is remembering where we came from and where he has brought us. It is bringing it back to Jesus in the gospel that the Lord of glory died for me. It's why we preach Jesus week in and week out. And if we don't, we should step down from the pulpit. And you can hold us accountable to that. That we remember our before and after he did that. And we sing his praise. And out of the overflow of that, we start telling people about him. So our job as leaders is to just lead you in worship. Worship to point you to Jesus so you see his beauty. And here's one way we can look at him. That actually Jesus is the truly sent one. Jesus is the true witness. He is the one who stepped out of heaven on a mission from the father where he said, my food is to do my father's will. He's the one who revealed the father. He's the one who demonstrated who he was by miracles and healings and signs and wonders to testify. And ultimately, he's the one who went to the cross to display the glory of God, where justice meets mercy, where sinners now can be justified in Christ. He's the true witness, the true martyr who laid down his life so that dead sinners like you and me might live. He's the true witness who turns us from being deceivers and sinners into testifiers, ones who proclaim and praise God. He's the one who stands in resurrection victory after testifying to God's grace on the cross so that we now stand in resurrection victory with him, vindicated, righteous. We're gonna sing a song during communion here and it is one of my favorite and there's a section in it that gets me every time. The song is called Love Unknown and one of the lyrics, parts of the lyrics goes, my song is love unknown. unknown. My Savior's love to me, love to the loveless shown that they might lovely be. That is the gospel. On the cross, love to the loveless shown. Jesus dying in our place that we might be lovely in him. When we think about witness to others, we wanna show love to the loveless that they might lovely be. Those lyrics in the hymn go, oh my friend, my friend indeed, who at my need his life did spend. We wanna keep coming back to that, that the Son of God at our need his life did spend. So how could we not sing? So as we close in just gospel application, I. My hope is that you would praise him today and every day. We keep coming back to the gospel. It's what stirs our hearts to praise. The Lord of glory dying on a cross in my place, taking me from before to after, changing me, transforming me. How could I not sing? And then let's proclaim him in our spheres of influence, in our oikos, those friends, those family. Maybe there's one person that comes to your mind right now that you can start praying for boldness to declare that gospel to him, knowing you have the same spirit and the same message that the church has always had, that the apostles had, that God has given us what we need to testify to him. We're gonna move to a time of communion now and a couple songs. And then we're going to close with the doxology. I want to actually send us out in praise. That's what that doxology is. But as we move to this time of communion, uh, the communion cups are in the back. Uh, We don't ask that you'd be a member of this church or any church. We just ask that you'd be someone that has called upon the name of Jesus Christ for forgiveness, for salvation. And so when we take that communion, we're remembered of Christ's true testimony. We're reminded of him sacrificed, his body broken for us, his blood shed for us and that we belong to him. And now we can sing his praises as we go out from this space. So let me pray for us and we'll sing a couple songs. Father, we praise your glorious grace that in your divine wisdom, wisdom we could not understand until you gave us your spirit, you have revealed to us the glory of the cross, the son of God dying in our place that we might live And you've made it real and tangible to us through the scriptures and through the spirit. So God, would you help us to reflect on that and to praise you today and to go out from here singing the praises of the one who showed love to the loveless. God, we thank you for who you are. We thank you, Jesus. And we pray all this in your name. Amen.